You're listening to sermon audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, you can visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com. is the book of Habakkuk. The sermon reading is from selected passages starting in Habakkuk 1, verse 1. For those who are able, please remain standing for the reading of God's word. The pronouncement that the prophet Habakkuk saw, how long, Lord, must I call for help, and you do not listen or cry out to you about violence, and you do not save? Why do you force me to look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Oppression and violence are right in front of me. Strife is ongoing and conflict escalates. This is why the law is ineffective and justice never emerges. For the wicked restrict the righteous, therefore justice comes out perverted. The Lord answered me, write down this vision, clearly inscribe it on tablets so one may easily read it. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It testifies about the end and will not lie. Though it delays, wait for it, since it will certainly come and not be late. Look, his ego is inflated, he is without integrity, but the righteous one will live by his faith. Lord, I have heard the report about you. Lord, I stand in all of your deeds. Revive your work in these years. Make it known in these years. In your wrath, remember mercy. I heard and I trembled within. My lips quivered at the sound. Rottenness entered my bones. I trembled where I stood. Now I must quietly wait for the day of the distress to come against the people invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud and there is no fruit on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though the flocks disappear from the pen and there are no herds in the stalls, yet I will celebrate in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord, my Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like those of a deer and enables me to walk on mountain heights. For the choir director on stringed instruments, this is God's word. Please be seated. Children, you are dismissed to your classes. Well, good morning. Uh, Good morning. I'm Chad, uh, one of the pastors here, and so thankful to be here with you this morning. So excited to continue with you in the Minor Prophet series that we've started several weeks ago, and we find ourselves, as you've heard this morning, in the book of Habakkuk. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open those up and follow along and read along with us. Um, Habakkuk may be a sermon text you haven't heard uh, very often, but it is so important for us to consider what Habakkuk has to say, as is all of God's Word. And uniquely, Habakkuk has some questions for us to consider that I'm thankful we get the opportunity to go through. Before we start, if you would, bow your head with me in prayer that the Spirit would be with us and guide our time. Uh, Father, I'm thankful for the chance to open up your Word. And God, I pray as we hear what Habakkuk has to show us and tell us, God, that you would speak clearly through the words that have been written down so many years ago, yet hold such relevance to us today. I'm grateful, Lord, for the opportunity that you have given us to gather and worship like this, and I ask that your spirit would be evident and clear. You would teach us and make us look more like Jesus, and we ask us all in his name. Amen. So the book of Habakkuk, similarly, in a similar fashion, 
to several weeks ago when we talked about Jonah is actually a little unique in terms of a prophetic book. Um, we are very familiar with prophecy where the prophet shows up, sees the people doing things they shouldn't be doing, and he brings a word of judgment and correction to the people saying, you need to get it right. Habakkuk's a little different in that he actually is not accusing the people. He is talking to God. Habakkuk is saying, this is all evil, and he looks to God and says, what are you doing? So he's making accusations, and really a summary the format of what's going on, Habakkuk brings a couple questions to God, and God answers a couple times, two times, and then his final chapter, chapter three, is really written in the format of a psalm. It's, it, you can see it by the fact that it's, it's directed to the choir master, the stringed instruments. It has the selahs in there, which are familiar in the psalms, okay? We don't even know what those really mean. We, maybe it's like just a musical interlude, you know? Maybe it's time to reflect on what you've heard, and pause for a moment, but it's intended to be sung. And so it ends with Habakkuk making a declaration of his conclusions and understanding and his trust in God. A theophany is included in that psalm. That's, that's probably easily summarized by saying a, a, a detailed graphic, one of the most comprehensive graphic images of what it looks like when a righteous and holy God displays his glory in, in a fallen world. And it wraps up with one of the most beautiful declarations of trust and faith anywhere in Scripture. So I'm excited because the questions he's asking probably could rightly be summed up in saying to God himself as he accused him, you are a holy and righteous God. Why do you tolerate evil? That doesn't sound like a new question to you probably. Uh, it's, it's commonly said a little differently. Many people who might be questioning the existence of a holy and righteous God might say something like this. I've heard this. If an all-powerful, all-loving God exists, why is there evil in this world? He is either not all-powerful because he can't stop it, or he is not all-loving because he doesn't stop it. Can you hear that? Familiar? This is probably one of the most common and significant complaints against a Christian worldview. And it's against really the idea of an all-powerful God because whether or not you realize it, people are spiritual. They just don't want to accept Yahweh, God most high, Christian God version of God. They're very comfortable with the spirituality. Matter of fact, I found some stats as I looked about it. The numbers are growing of spiritual but not religious and in a vast array of other pagan spiritualism in the U.S. I actually found a 2018 Pew Research Survey that estimated there are approximately 1.5 million practitioners of witchcraft in America. Wiccan, pagan, folk magic. That's more than mainline Presbyterians. And I'm gonna feel like they're everywhere. But, but here's the thing that we look at this, as people are spiritual, and, excuse me, as they're spiritual and looking to spiritual things, and they're finding it difficult to wrestle with the idea of a good God allowing bad things to happen, there's a few significant, important realities we should take away from Habakkuk before we jump into it. Is that first, this is not a new question. 
We're not even like 2,500, 3,000 years ago, Habakkuk is asking it. Okay? No, as novel as we might feel about our new ideas of why God doesn't exist, Habakkuk is wrestling with this already. So it's not a new question, and it's something that God finds important to answer because he puts it in Scripture. Right? So he also recognizes it is a difficult question because we are frail humans. We are, we, we, we are not infinite, and the workings of an infinite God do become complicated to understand. Secondly, it's a question that we believers should wrestle with. My encouragement to you is this. If you have never come to a place like Habakkuk where the world around you feels so evil and so hopeless that you question why God would let it happen, and that has not happened to you, it more than likely will. It's a question that we should think about before we actually get to the circumstance where we have to consider, why do you let this happen, God? And finally, the third important thing I want to point out to you from this text is that it's safe to ask God questions. It's safe to ask God honest questions. And I put that caveat of honest. When I used to teach uh, in high school, maybe you weren't aware I did this. I wasn't in high school personally. I taught high schoolers. Uh, when I taught, uh, I, the common phrase might be say, there's no stupid questions, right? I actually used to, I changed it. I said, guys, there are dumb questions. There are stupid questions. There are no stupid, honest questions. Because you get in a room of high schoolers, they just want to waste your time. I'm sorry. <laughs> just I'm, sometimes it happens with adults, but they're just going to ask random questions that just don't pertain to what you're doing or they're trying to mess with you. There's no stupid honest questions. And I think it's important for us to recognize that it's safe to ask God honest questions. He knows your heart already. And scripture over and over again says, for those who honestly seek God, he will reveal himself to you. So you don't have to sit back blindly and think, I don't understand this, but I don't want to act like I have some uncertainty. Ask tough questions of God. He's resilient. He can answer them. And he knows your heart. That's the most important thing. He knows your heart. Don't imagine you're going to get to a point where you're just going to know it all. So like Habakkuk, we can ask really tough questions. So when I'm looking at this passage and we want to walk through it, I think it's helpful for us to take the time to walk through the complaints and the answers of God, and then we'll take a look at what was Habakkuk's final conclusion to these questions in this discussion. So let's look at starting in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 1. The pronouncement that the prophet Habakkuk saw, How long, Lord, must I call for help? And you do not listen or cry out to you about violence, and you do not save. Why do you force me to look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Oppression and violence are right in front of me. Strife is ongoing and conflict escalates. This is why the law is ineffective and justice never emerges. For the wicked restrict the righteous and therefore justice comes out perverted. So something important about Habakkuk to note is that we have the least amount of information about him outside of his book, okay? He is prophesying in a period of time uh, in which the southern kingdom of Judah is the only thing left, all right? The, if, you, if you were to spend some time in Kings and Chronicles of the Old Testament, you'd have a really wild ride of a story, and you'd find out that during the period of time that the kingdom's divided, northern Israel, southern Judah, and northern Israel gets attacked and scattered uh, by, by conquerors, 
This is very common. Assyrians and Babylonians back in the day, maybe you heard these teams. These were, these were nations, these teams, these nations that were going around and conquering people. And one of their strategies to help quell rebellion is to not let them all stay in one place. So they take people from this country that they, that they uh, conquered and they send them over to that country and people from that country to this country. And it just makes it a little more challenging and discouraging to try to do an uprising for a nation you don't even, you're not even from, right? So uh, Northern Israel has already happened to them. Judah's remaining. And yet Habakkuk is looking at the people and he's like, how do you let them keep living like this? He's like, they don't even care about the law. It says the law is of no effect. There's injustice, there's violence. There's oppression, and even more than that, whatever little bit of righteous people are left, he says, the ones who remained were restricted by the wicked, and justice comes out perverted anyway. It just looks hopeless, God. And he says, why are you letting it happen? Does that sound like a question you might wrestle with? Huh? When we look around and we see what maybe good folks are, hey, I'm good, I'm trying to do good, but they keep messing it up because there's evil people in the world. We look at turmoil and conflict in an area like the Middle East, which is not, don't be, don't be um, confused. It's, it's more than just people. It's a spiritual battle at war. Because I'm sorry, I had a conversation the other day with someone. And they said, after thousands of years, you think people would get tired of it. But they are enraged and inspired to continue. And you see that violence and you say, God, why are you just letting this keep going? And God answers. And what's his answer? Be utterly astounded. Habakkuk 1, verse 5. Look at the nations and observe. Be utterly astounded. For I am doing something in your day that you will not believe when you hear about it. Right there. That's where you pause and put that on a coffee cup. Hey, you guys, I'm going to do something crazy. You won't even believe it. And then we're hyped. Like, nice. Don't put that on a coffee cup. If you do, and you might have seen it. If you do... The astounding thing he's talking about is not something that you're really looking forward to. Because next he says, look, I am raising up the Chaldeans, also known as the Babylonians. That bitter, look how he describes them, that bitter, impetuous nation that marches across the, the earth's open spaces to seize territories not its own. They are fierce and terrifying. Their views of justice and sovereignty stem from themselves. They are their own law. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than wolves of the night. Their horsemen charge ahead. Their horsemen come from distant lands. They fly like eagles, swooping to devour. So this is there, terrifying to the other nations. If you hear the Chaldeans coming, you're not excited about it. And you're afraid for what comes. All of them come to do violence. Their faces are set in determination. They gather prisoners like sand. They mock kings and rulers are a joke to them. They laugh at every fortress. They build siege ramps to capture it. And then they sweep by like the wind and pass through, and they are guilty. Their strength is their God. Hey, don't worry. I see Judah's messed up. Don't worry, I'm gonna let the Chaldeans come and wreck house. That's not the answer back is looking for. None of us. I'm like, look at the world around us. Our nation is so terrible, God. What are you gonna do? Hey, don't worry. I'm gonna send Canada. They're going to wipe all of you out. Wait, hold on. God is almost in a disturbing way. We look at this and realize that God is using what is a destructive, devastating force and allowing them 
to bring judgment on his people. And he's telling Habakkuk, I see it. I see what's happening. And we know from history that when the Babylonians come, when the Chaldeans come, it meant devastation for Judah because that was when they got scattered. That's when they got distributed. That's when essentially what is Israel and Judah was wiped out and became but a fragment of what it used to be. And we know not long after this, that's how they timed this with Habakkuk, that the Babylonians did this exactly. And so Habakkuk hears this from the Lord and he says, as you and I probably would, okay, hold on, let's not overreact, God. All right, there's gotta be a better solution. All right, look at verse uh, chapter, verse uh, 12 of chapter one. God, are you not from eternity, Lord, my God? My holy one, you will not die. He's like buttering him up a little bit, but he's like, you know, he's being honest. Hey, God, aren't you not from eternity? Lord, you appointed them to execute judgment? My rock, you destined them to punish us? It feels a little bit like if I'm trying to, with Heather, like, babe, you would do that? Honey, he's like, my rock? Your eyes are too pure to look on evil and you cannot tolerate wrongdoing. So why do you tolerate those who are treacherous? Why are you silent while one who is wicked swallows up one who is more righteous than himself? You have made mankind like a fish of the sea, like marine creatures that have no ruler. ruler. The Chaldeans pull them all up with a hook, catch them in their dragnets, and gather them in their fishing nets. That is why they are glad and rejoice. That is why they sacrifice to their dragnet and burn incense to their fishing net. For by these things, their portion is rich and their food is plentiful. Will you therefore empty their net and continually slaughter nations without mercy? I'm sorry, will they therefore empty their net and continually slaughter nations without mercy? What is Habakkuk's response? Habakkuk says, God, you are holy, you are good. How in the world can you allow and sit back silent while wicked people swallow up people who are more righteous? That's an interesting transition. Because in the first complaint, Judah's wicked. And now in the second complaint, okay, but they're better than the Chaldeans. I, I liken this a little bit to uh, even yesterday. For, a long, for the entire football season, I don't use a lot of sports analogies and because most, a lot of you guys might be like, ah, who cares? But I think you'll get this one. So for most of, of the season so far, I've been saying, Lord, how long will you allow UNC to go undefeated? And then yesterday, God in his providence determined that UVA would be the one that beats them. The first top 10 victory for them on the road in their entire existence. And I turned to the Lord and I said, God, why did it have to be UVA? You see his tension? Okay, UNC is bad, but they're not bad as UVA. In this case... It's a lot more detrimental than a football game, <laughs> I admit. But you have a circumstance where, 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 God is look, where Habakkuk is looking at what God's choice of judgment is, and he says, man, Judah is evil and wicked, but these Chaldeans, they don't even recognize you. Look at the terror that they reign. They are not worshiping you. He says specifically they are worshiping their dragnets, 
is what he says. And, they're, and they burn incense, they're fishing nets. What he's, what he's using is an analogy where essentially the Chaldeans are so terrifying and they are conquering so many people. It's like the world is full of fish and they just got a big old net and they're taking everything for themselves. And that their hope and their worship is in their power. That they are gaining in riches, they are gaining in wealth and, and power because they are continuing to conquer people. And Habakkuk is questioning the Lord again, why would you use them and tolerate their evil? I, well, that's, a, that's a word for us at times because there are, there are likely, and I'll never make a, I'm not going to make a declaration of one particular instance, but we have to consider that why would God not work at times today in the same way? The times where we sit back and say, why did the evil advance? Why do they gain? Why, do, why, do evil win? why does evil seem to win over good? And really, what we should look like Habakkuk should be asking the question is, what is God trying to teach us here? What, what is it, maybe a grace in this evil that I should be recognizing? I never seem to get ahead, but this other person who's doing all the evil is getting all the glory. And that's what he's faced with. And our circumstances that we sometimes wrestle with have nothing to do with the kind of destruction the Chaldeans were going to be bringing. And so Habakkuk challenges God again and says, hey, you're too good to do this, Lord. And God provides his second answer in verse 2. He says, the Lord answered me. Chapter 2, verse 2. Write down this vision, clearly inscribe it on tablets so one may easily read it. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It testifies about the end and will not lie. Though it delays, wait for it, since it will certainly come and not be late. Look, his ego, speaking really of the Chaldeans and evil in general here, he is without, his ego is inflated, he is without integrity. But the righteous one will live by his faith. God sees Habakkuk's question and he, he doesn't miss the transition he makes, right? He says, hey, Judah's being wicked and there's a few righteous that are being squashed and then the Chaldeans are gonna come judge. Hey, okay, Judah's still more righteous than the Chaldeans. His definitions move a little bit on who's righteous. And God responds by saying, I am going to complete a work and I need you to write this down on tablets. It's significant because tablets is a familiar writing document, a recording document for Babylonians, not necessarily for the Jews, but he's trying to say, I want this to last so people have this message because I'm not promising how long this might take. He says, write it down because I got something to tell you. I'm not going to lie about it. And there's an interesting thing about the language of this prophecy that's actually argued about Go figure, theologians argue about something. But it's, it's a disgust because it's about the tense of the language throughout this prophecy. Because in English, we might, well, it's a hard language, right? In English, we might use things like uh, past, present, future, all these different tenses. Sorry if I'm giving you a headache and you didn't like grammar when you're in school. But like past would be like, he ate. I don't know why I go to food immediately. He ate. You know, maybe in the future, like, we will eat, right? Or something's currently happening, he is eating. See how we change that around? And you guys intuitively know 
Then I'm talking about something that's going to happen, something that might happen, something that will happen. Yeah. Sometimes you're walking around all day and you're getting hangry and you're like, maybe I will eat. It's not, it's not certain. Don't say he ate it. That's not, that's not free. But in this particular format, it's actually a created kind of tense that they describe as a prophetic perfect. Okay? What that means is the declaration of it is something that is not happened yet, but it's absolutely so real it's if it w- that it will happen that it's almost like it already has happened. It's just kind of in between space. And that's what God's getting at. The Lord's saying, this is for sure. It ain't no maybe. Okay? Write this down. And then he takes Habakkuk's definition of righteousness and gives a little challenge. He says, look, the unrighteous, they are without integrity and they are all about themselves and trusting in themselves. Ultimately, that's it. They're not trusting in anything outside of that. But the righteous one will live by his faith. So what is God's definition of righteousness? The person who lives by his faith. This is a significant phrase and it's not new. It's not new to Scripture. It shows up twice, at least, in the New Testament, used by the New Testament writers in Romans and then in Hebrews. But it also harkens back to to something we've heard about Abraham when he was first called. It's to clarify that the righteousness that you carry has nothing to do with your moral perfection. It has nothing to do with the things that you do right or wrong on any given day or compared to any given person in your life. That is a fruitless battle. If you wrestle with your righteousness before God based on your daily activities or whether you get up this morning early enough to read and have your quiet time or whether you feel like you prayed enough today or whether or not you were kind to your neighbor or whether or not maybe your kid pushed you just a little too far and you snapped. What an unstable position before the Lord to have some measure of his love and seeing you in righteousness that's based solely on your behavior. What Habakkuk is seeing from God and what Abraham heard was when he said, Abraham believed God, the one that was called, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And when you see Abraham's life, that man did some crazy stuff. I mean, he was like scared of getting, he like lied and had his, like his wife go live with a king because he didn't want to get killed. I mean, he apparently had a pretty wife. Sarah was pretty, and he was, like, nervous about that. So he's, he's doing some weird things in his life. He's doing things that seem out of whack. He's doing stuff we would do. But ultimately, at the base, he trusted God, even though it didn't look right and perfect all the time. That was where his hope was. And it was counted as his righteousness. And when you go to the New Testament, you see that in Romans chapter 1, Paul makes the same reference to this passage in verses 16 and 17 when he talks about the gospel. And he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Just as it's written, the righteous will live by faith. He quotes it. He says that from Habakkuk's time and before, God has always looked at his people and said, you trust me, you trust me, you put faith in me, you believe that I am good, you believe who I am and what I will do, that is your righteousness. 
I don't need more. And in Hebrews chapter 10, when the writer is looking at people and he's trying to encourage them because they are discouraged looking for Jesus to come again, that phrase of like you look at the world and say, come Lord Jesus, please come. He tells them you need endurance so that after you have done God's will, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, the coming one will come. He won't delay, but my righteous one will live by faith. So, so our righteousness, friends, is yet to just believe and trust God. And, and Habakkuk did not have all the information. Abraham surely didn't have all the information. He just shows up and says, hey, can you move to this other nation? He's like, all right, I got you. Hey guys, let's pack up. Habakkuk is sitting here and saying, this is all terrible. I don't know what you're doing. You're supposed to be a good God. And God says, you have to trust me. You have to trust me. And now we on this side of the cross can see an even more clear work of what God's done in his son, Jesus. That, that we have stories of God's faithfulness and then we see his complete and perfect work in Jesus Christ on the cross. And God continues to say to us day after day as we wrestle, you can trust me. My righteous will live by faith in me. It's the same sentiment that Paul gives when he tells them, if God did not keep his son from you, what good thing does he keep from you? Trust him. It might not look good. We read that passage from Psalms, Romans, I'm not some Psalms, from Romans 8, where Paul also says that all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. But you know what? It doesn't always feel that way. But God says, my righteous will live by faith. And then we turn after that where God confirms that he sees the evil in the world and he confirms that one of the things you need to trust is that ultimately in the end, I will make all things right. The Chaldeans may look like they've got power now, but my judgment is not late and it is right and good and true. And so what does he start with? He goes into five woes. Now these are a familiar format in the Old Testament and in the New in which they are really curses called out for behaviors, things that are happening. They are usually seen in comparison or in parallel with blessings. Hey, these are the things you should be doing, you'll be blessed. These are the things that you shouldn't be doing, woe to you. And Jesus did the same thing, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the merciful on the Sermon on the Mount. And then he looked at the Pharisees and woe to you Pharisees who heap burdens on people they can't bear. So he used the same format and God introduces it here, but he, he does it in such a way that it's really a taunt. Hey guys, you think you're getting away with stuff, but won't all the people that you're abusing taunt against you? That's what it says in verse six. Won't all of these take up taunt against him with mockery and riddles? They will say this, and let's go through the woes. Woe to him who amasses what is not his. How much longer? and loads himself with goods taken in pledge. Won't your creditors suddenly arise and those who disturb you awake? Then you will become spoil for them. Since you have plundered many nations, all the peoples who remain, who remain will plunder you. 
because of human bloodshed and violence against lands and cities and who live in them. Essentially, the first woe is woe to those who take advantage of other people for their financial gain. The comparison is someone who would put excessive interest on people or maybe take a pledge from someone and call it early to take their possessions for themselves. Someone who is financially and economically abusing other people. The second is also an economic um, abuse. In verse 9, it says, Woe to him who dishonestly makes wealth for his house to place his nest on high, to escape the grasp of disaster. You have planned shame for your house by wiping out many peoples and sinning against your own self. For the stones will cry out from the wall and the rafters will answer them from the woodwork. He says, not only just somebody who's doing some bad debts, but just in general, if you try to acquire wealth and property at the expense of others or oppression of others, woe to you for getting the wealth dishonestly. I see it. And it says, you think you've shored up for yourself some security in this world by building yourself up on a high mountain, but I'm not blind to what you're doing. Third, he goes to a woe against violence and the unjust. Verse 12, woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with injustice. Is it not from the Lord of armies that the people's labor only to fuel the fire and countries exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory as the water covers the sea. He says, you are sitting here in vain trying to build up your power at the expense of other people. Injustice and bloodshed and violence. And you, have no you should have no confidence in the power that you're acquiring because I'm watching and I see and I'm just. Fourth, woe to him who gives his neighbor drink, pouring out your wrath and even making them drunk in order to look at their nakedness. This is an example of someone who takes advantage. It's debauchery. It's familiar in Babylon. We know that there was wild parties and drunkenness for the sake of just uh, of, of living um, a debauched life and the things and the parties that went on. And then in this case, it says, woe to those who give their neighbors a drink to take advantage of them. So essentially looking to your neighbors, giving them a good party, but only for, uh, to use them at their own expense. You'll be filled with disgrace instead of glory as you disgrace others. It's, you'll also drink and expose your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter disgrace will cover your glory. For your violence against Lebanon will overwhelm you. The destruction of animals will terrify you because of your human bloodshed and violence against lands, cities, and all who live in them. So it's a woe that watch out because you have given drink to your neighbor to take advantage of them. And yet you stand waiting for the cup. We've heard this in the Minor Prophets, which is the wrath of God against you. And E, I'm sorry, I have E. It's on my, my notes. The fifth... It's a woe to idolatry. What use is a carved idol after its craftsman carves it? It is only a cast image, a teacher of lies. For the one who crafts it shapes trust. Its shape trusts in it. It makes worthless idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, wake up, or to mute stone, come alive. Can it teach? Look, it may be plated with gold and silver, yet there is no breath in it at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let the whole earth be silent in his presence. In some respects, the final woe is a summary of all the woes if you look at it in terms of the fact that isn't anything that we place our trust in idolatry before the Lord. And that people would think to carve some image and put it in front of them and believe that it has some life and spirituality to offer to them. And God says, woe to you. This cast image is just a teacher of lies, that there's some hope outside of God himself. 
So God confirms for Habakkuk that the righteousness of my people is by their faith and trust in me. And then he describes for them the five things that he recognizes that will be judged. And Habakkuk ends with his psalm in which he reflects and says, oh, okay, here's how I respond. And it's a psalm, it's a beautiful, beautiful psalm where he goes to verse one, a prayer of the prophet Habakkuk. According to Shaganath, Lord, I have heard the report about you. Lord, I stand in awe of your deeds. Revive your work in these years. Make it known in these years. And in your wrath, remember mercy. It's helpful for us to take a pause and look at the introduction to his psalm because I think it's, a, it's almost a summary of what Habakkuk's conclusions are. His response when he looks at how do I have faith in you when I don't understand the world around me? He first notes, says, I stand in all of your deeds. He remembers the things that God has done already. He knows the work that God's done before, and he knows the character of God. And so we are encouraged ourselves, remind yourself and reflect and be thankful for the way God has continued to work in your life. Look at the testimony of scripture and know that God has worked through history and that he can continue to work in your life today. Second, he says, God, revive your work in these years. Make it known in these years. It's okay for us to pray that God does something here today. That his justice and his mercy and his kindness and his goodness and his blessing would pour out right now. That we stand in all the fact that he's done deeds, but like Habakkuk, we say, revive that work today in my years. Make it known to people. Let them see it today. And finally, he says, in your wrath, Remember mercy. God, though your justice, your judgment is good and right, God, I pray that you would show me mercy. That's, that's, that's all that Habakkuk has to do is to offer himself in trust and faith that God would be merciful to him. Right? That's what, that's what God says. He says to him, the righteous one live by faith. You're trusting me. And that's what Habakkuk does at the beginning of his psalm. I remember the goodness that you've done and your work in the past, your deeds. Do that today. Show me mercy. And then he goes on to what is a theophany. What does it look like when a holy God shows up in an evil world? God comes from Temin, the holy one from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covers the heavens and the earth is full of his praise. His brilliance is like light. Rays are flashing from his hand. This is where his power is hidden. Plague goes before him and pestilence follows in his steps. He stands and shakes the earth. He shook, he looks and startles the nations. The age-old mountain breaks apart. The ancient hills sink down. His pathways are ancient. I see the tents of cushion in distress. The tent curtains of the land of Midian tremble. So Habakkuk starts his story with his psalm after he calls out to the Lord and he moves on to the theophany. He points back to the deeds of God. Everyone recognizes when they look at this that these are references and recalls to the Exodus. That, that when he comes from Mount, from Mount Paran and Taman, these are in Edom. They're a place south of Judah. They're coming from Egypt. That God is in this a divine warrior who's coming in to conquer and he's leading his people in victory. In fact, he intentionally chooses to use the word for God, which is archaic, it's, an, it's kind of a fallen out of style form of the word God that we would have seen back in Exodus times. 
He also talks about Cushion and Midian, and they tremble. It's not because they're evil, but those are tent people that lived between the areas of Egypt and coming up into Israel and his promised land. So this entire story, as you see, plague goes before him. What happened in Egypt? Plagues. And pestilence behind him. This is simultaneously Habakkuk remembering the deeds of God to save his people and his power and glory in coming and his power over all the other idols you might put your trust in. Because what's interesting is plague and pestilence were actually names, weird names, for Babylonian gods. And instead of being some power entity of plague and pestilence, which might do something on this earth, he is sitting saying, they are just, they are just tools that God wields. Inanimate objects that his judgment when it comes, you see plague and pestilence. And then it goes on to say in verse eight, are you angry at the rivers, Lord? Is your wrath against the rivers or is your fury against the sea? When you ride on the horses, your victorious chariots, all of these things, the sea, the rivers, these are gods that were being worshiped. And he is saying, you have power over all of these things. The horses and the chariots were Egyptians chasing after Israel. And God is the one coming in victory in his chariots. You took the sheath from the bow. The arrows are ready to be used with an oath. Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains see you and shudder. A downpour of water sweeps by. The deep roars with its voice and lifts its waves high. Sun and moon stand still in their lofty residence. At the flash of your flying arrows, at the brightness of your shining spear, you march across the earth with indignation. You trample the nations in wrath. You come out for what purpose? To save your people. You save your anointed. This is a declaration of Habakkuk to say that God's judgment has purpose. It's a victory march of God as divine warrior and conquest, and he's using every description he can to talk about the fact that the world stands, does not stand up against the might power of God. And then when God comes to judge, he doesn't do it like an impetuous child or throwing a tantrum. He's not someone who's like a parent at the end of their patience and just says, fine. God's justice is always on time and it's always for a purpose. And what Habakkuk reminds us here is that God's purpose is to save his people. It's to save his people. It's salvation because he comes in to save his people and he comes in to crush the enemy. Look there at the next verse. At the end of that verse, you crush the leader of the house of the wicked and you strip him down from foot to neck. You pierce his head with his own spears. His warriors storm out to scatter us, gloating us as if ready to secretly devour the leak. But you tread the sea with your horses, stirring up the vast waters. God is the one who shows up victorious. It's not that anyone might stand against him. He is victorious and he saves his people. And why does God's justice appear to delay? Because God wants to save all his people. Romans 2 catches the same exact theme when Paul tells us that God's patience is waiting, but he warns people not to take that for granted. He says, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience, 
not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. But no, because of your hardened and unrepentant hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. God's patience and steadfast love, his kindness, all of those things are meant to call more people to salvation and forgiveness and repentance, but they think it means he's weak. And they put up idols for themselves. And it's the same thing that Peter says in 2 Peter when he looks at the people of God who are facing tribulation and he reminds them, don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like one day. Time is not the same to him. It's his purpose that matters. And in verse nine, it says, the Lord does not delay his promise. As some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but that all to come to repentance. Why does God let evil persist? Because evil, the world is full of evil people who he wants to save. Did you know, if we look at terrorists and we look at things that happen and we say, that's disgusting, how does God let that happen? Why does it happen? Did you know Paul was dragging Christians out of their home and killing them in the street? And in his kindness, he saved him to write Romans. that we look at people around us like Paul and say, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we pray for their freedom from evil that they would see Christ more beautifully. And, and what's not to be missed is Habakkuk has a veiled perspective of what's happening. He sees God coming in victory to save his people, but we shouldn't miss that the real divine warrior, warrior is ultimately Jesus Christ himself. He's the conquering warrior and king. Right? When in the garden, God made the promise that the descendant of Eve would crush the head of the serpent. Habakkuk says that the divine warrior comes and crushes the head of the leader of the house. And then on the cross, God put Satan and sin and death to open shame by crushing their head in Christ. And the future that is so true to happen and sure that we point to, we see in Revelation where Jesus comes as a conquering white warrior. He's not white personally. I'm talking about his outfit, his robe. I know how to really mess up a moment. He's in a white robe, wielding a sword to make all things right. And what Habakkuk is recognizing is that's the God that we can trust. That he is here ultimately to save his people. And his conclusion comes in verses 16 through 19 because now in realizing the good that God has done and the perfect judgment that he will bring for the salvation of his people, in verse 16 he says, I heard and I trembled within. My lips quivered at the sound. Rottenness entered my bones. I trembled where I stood. And now I must quietly wait for the day of distress to come against the people invading us. Habakkuk teaches us again that even though we need to trust in God, it doesn't make it easy because he knows what's coming with the Chaldeans and he trembles in his bones.
his lips quivered. Have you ever had that? You know, you, you feel like you're really trusting God, but you're still torn up about it. He knows what's coming, but his ultimate conclusion is this. Though the fig tree does not bud and there is no fruit on the vines, though the olive crops fail and the fields produce no fruit, though the flocks disappear from the pen and there are no herds in the stalls, though it looks like the locusts of the Chaldeans have come, down, come through and wiped us clean, yet I will celebrate in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. He knows it's about his salvation. The Lord, my Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like those of a deer and enables me to walk on mountain heights. My prayer for us is that we, like Habakkuk, can come, even in the darkest of days, to the conclusion that the Lord is our strength. That when all things seem to be hopeless, yet we will rejoice in the Lord. Father, in your kindness, you have given us your word, and I pray that your spirit is at work here even today. Lord, for those of us who don't know Jesus Christ and his power and his glory, I pray, Lord, that his salvation would come on them in this moment. Lord, that your spirit would work in hearts in such a way to, to grow the kingdom in our midst. And God, for those of us who are believers, I pray, Lord, that our depth of faith and trust will be encouraged and grown. That even as we see you work more and more every day, that we will grow in our confidence and love for you. God, we love you. We thank you for all that you have done. We praise you and pray that you continue to work in our midst, that we see you, that you would be known. And God, in your wrath, remember mercy. God, that we see your kindness in the midst of turmoil, that we recognize that you are a good and righteous and holy God and that your heart is to save people. Father, make us more like Jesus, that we would seek and save, that we would seek out the salvation of the lost and that we would be as the hands and feet of Christ to love people who are captive to this world, to the trappings of power, to the trappings of the flesh, to the trappings of idolatry, and God, that we would show them that the God most high waits and desires that none would perish, and that he has shown them immense grace in Jesus Christ. And we ask all this in his name. Amen.